We want to continue on in our journey through the mysterious and sometimes confusing, but always pointing to Jesus, book of Revelation. Hopefully by now, you've got a little taste of it. You're more familiar with how John is writing, what John is saying, what he's pointing to. Um, I think you could all agree with me that studying or even just hearing Revelation calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God. Anybody want to affirm that and say, yep, yep, I'm right there with you. Um, But we're getting to know it. And hopefully it makes more sense the more we study it, the more we, we listen for what God has to say. I recently saw a political cartoon that somebody posted on Facebook, and it was, it was weird because it was written by Dr. Seuss in 1942, and I want to describe it for you. It was, it was a picture, it was like a drawing of an old man, and he has, he's wearing a hat, and he's got these stars on his hat, and he's reading a book, and there's a, there's a baby in a crib, but it's, it's, it's like ballooned up like a balloon, and it's starting to float away, and it's got these ropes that are attached to the crib. And I was like, oh, that's so funny. Yeah, political satire, right? You guys aren't really laughing. Uh, maybe you don't get it. Or maybe I didn't describe it well. Maybe it doesn't make sense yet. Go ahead, Orinda, go ahead and show us a picture of this political cartoon. Okay, so this is Dr. Seuss, 1942. There's a couple of details I forgot to mention. I told you about the man with the hat, but now that you see him, you recognize this guy, right? That's Uncle Sam. He's not an actual uncle. He's probably not even an actual person. You history buffs can debate me on that later. Um, But he's a personification of our nation. He represents the United States. And in this cartoon, he's reading a book called How to Bubble the Baby. Oh, and I forgot to mention that the baby is labeled as inflation. And he's saying, jeepers, it's, it's time I took this problem seriously. And so maybe now seeing it, you get a better idea. Maybe this is like a a commentary on inflation, uh, the United States' responsibility to take care of that, or maybe there's more going on that I don't see because I wasn't around then. Remember, this was 1942, so there was a big war happening. Maybe the people who saw this originally had a better understanding of this. Maybe seeing it, you get a little bit more details, but there's still a few things that we aren't picking up. I'm sure that Dr. Seuss was real specific about why he drew it like this and why he included this and labeled this and excluded this. And it all makes sense to him and his audience. But for us, I mean, think of how this is like, what, 70, is 80 years removed from this drawing? We're, we're in the dark a little bit. The reason I wanted to start with that is because I've heard a lot of commentators refer to the book of Revelation as a description of a political cartoon. There are a lot of details, not just Revelation, but all apocalyptic literature in a lot of ways is like a political cartoon. It's visual, there are symbols, it's satirical, and it's critical in some ways of what is going on. But you kind of have to know what's going on. You have to understand the symbols in order for it to make sense. So some of Revelation does, some of it doesn't. We're gonna do our best, like I've said, to explain what we can understand as we go, and then there's just some things we go, I don't know. It's a weird drawing. We'll just kind of do our best to, to get what we can out of it. And there's going to be more images like these in Revelation 14, which is the chapter that we're going to camp out on today. You might remember a couple of weeks ago, I said this, but I said it on a video, so you might have been getting your gum out or you might have forgotten. Um, but there are these sections in Revelation called interludes. John doesn't call them interludes, but they're a break from the main action of the the angels in heaven sounding their trumpets and pouring out their bowls. There's kind of like a main story that's happening, but then there's these asides. 
And the point of the asides are to encourage Christians who are weary. And they're a persecuted church that is small in numbers. And it's, it's, it's these little images and these little drawings that say, hey, this is okay. Here's what's really going on. That's what we're going to find in Revelation 14 this morning. So I'm going to read three sections. I'm going to read it a section at a time and then make a few comments along the way. Hopefully, this will give us a better understanding. But ultimately, my hope is that it will draw us closer to Jesus and give us a greater allegiance to him as our true king. Does that sound good? I feel like we should pray before we go to the word. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you for the throne that you share. Thank you for mornings like this where we can stand with one another and just simply sing, holy, holy, holy Lord. If that's all we do today, Lord, I pray it's what you want. I pray that it recalibrates our hearts and centers our focus solely on you. My hope this morning, though, and what I ask is that you will send us out, that you will better equip us to live our lives in a way that shines the light of Christ and invites people to come to worship as well, to join in with the chorus of the faithful witnesses singing, Holy is the Lamb who was slain. We ask this in his name. Amen. John says, I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters, like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They followed the lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as firstfruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Okay, what's going on here? John looks and he sees this multitude of those who are loyal to the lamb, to Jesus Christ. If you were with us last week, uh, either online or here in person, we we got to hear a guest speaker, a video by a real smart guy, a guy that I love listening to named Randy Harris. He took us through Revelation 13, and he pointed out that the number of the beast is, what is it? 666. We know that number, that scary number that people tend to uh, superstitiously avoid. Give Give me a little hand raise if any of you have yet seen the number 666 at the gas pump. Have you seen gas for $6.66? Oh, you will. Watch out. Don't put that gas in your car. (laughs) But since we know, we've, we've learned along the way that numbers in Revelation are symbolic and they have meaning, we've learned that the number seven is God's number. It's the number of completion and perfection. Six is man's number. Six is uh, not quite seven. It's not quite there. What Randy talked about last week is that all of the things that we tend to get enamored of, addicted to, whether they're good or bad, they're usually things of this earth, and they keep us from worshiping and understanding and knowing God. Six is mankind's number. Seven is God's number. And in Revelation 13, we saw that there were all these people who had the number 666 emblazoned on their forehead. They followed the beast, the one who claims to be God, but is not quite 
God. And in Revelation 14, we see that the faithful, they're not the ones who have 666 written on their foreheads and written on their hands, but instead they have the name of God written on them. These are the ones who were not seduced by Rome's uh, claims to divinity. They're the ones who remain true to following Jesus in the midst of the Roman dog and pony show. We are the greatest. You should worship us. And verse, tells us, verse 4 tells us that these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes, even if that path leads them to a cross. And you think about this number. We heard this number before, 144,000. We heard, talked before, too, about how this is a symbolic number in a couple of different ways. It's in the thousands, and if you see a 1,000 or 10,000 or thousands upon thousands, it's just like you would describe, it's, you would imagine. It's a great number that you can't even count. And the 144 is, is 12 times 12, and we know that 12 is the number of God's chosen people, the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus chose 12 apostles. This is the number of the faithful. So you have 144 and the 1,000 put together. It's a great multitude of God's people. And then you have this somewhat TMI detail that they give us, that these people standing there that John sees are all virgins. These are people who have abstained from sexual relations. And uh, you might be relieved to hear me say that that is a symbolic description as well. This is, uh, this is a reference to what the Old Testament warriors would do. Do you remember King David and his mighty men that you read about in Kings and, and Samuel and Chronicles? There's references there to when it was time for battle. They said, we're not going to go home to our wives. Do you remember Uriah the Hittite? The good guy that ended up getting murdered. Uh, they would abstain and they would say, no, we're in we're going to remain vigilant. We're going to be ready for battle. We're going to follow our commander, and we're going to have this central focus. That's a description of these faithful ones. They're ready. They're ready to follow their leader wherever he takes them. And we might ask this question. We have kind of an understanding of what the number represents, this description of the crowd. But who are these people, you might say? I think we know who these people are. We've talked about this. They're us. We can see ourselves in this faithful number. This is that class photo of the people who have remained faithful to Jesus. Christians, past, present, and future. And as you see this number in your mind, can you, as you look at this, this photo, can you find yourself in that picture? It's like on yearbook day. Remember the yearbooks would come out in high school and you'd flip to the, the group pictures that you were in or maybe the whole class going, you'd go, uh, oh yeah, that's me. I'm right there with my friends. I'm there. You can see me. I'm part of this group. Hopefully we can see ourselves in that picture when we look at this snapshot. We are the ones who remain faithful to Christ, whether times were good or times were bad. We have vigilantly prepared ourselves for whenever the call to witness Christ comes through. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. As we turn the page, we find another political cartoon beginning where there are going to be these three angels and they fly by and they each have a message for people to hear. Their message is about faithfulness and steadfastness and perseverance. John says, then I saw another angel flying in midair. And he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And he said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. And a second angel followed and said, fallen 
Fallen is Babylon the great, which made all of the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. And a third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on their forehead or their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. Yikes! There will be no rest day and night for those who worship the beast and its image, or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. A little strange. Let's talk about it. Well, first let's talk about this. I took Lisa out for her birthday a couple weeks ago, and I took her to this place called Sandbox VR, and it's a, it's a virtual reality studio where you go. It's like a video game, uh, and you, you put on this headset, and you have these controls, and you put sensors on your feet and your hands, and it basically uh, puts you in a video game. So if I look up, I can see the sky. If I look over here, I see these uh, enemies that are trying to attack me. Lisa and I were in a, a pirate adventure, so we were these... Uh, buccaneers that had, had pistols and swords and we were fighting these skeletons. Arenda, I got a video of that. I want to show you guys what this looked like. So th this is the highlight video they gave us afterward. Uh, there we are. That's what was actually happening. But then it goes back and forth to what we were seeing. We were in this world where we were fighting these monsters and we were on a ship. But you can see the reality of the thing was just we're just in a blank room. There's nothing really going on. But it felt so real. We were immersed in this world. But it was cool because there were these reminders while you were immersed in the world. Like the parrot that you saw earlier, he was kind of your guide. And he was saying like, yeah, you're getting a little too close to the wall. You're going to bang your head. You better step back. <laughs> there were these guidelines. Like there, was, there were hints about what was happening in the real world while we were fighting these monsters and having this adventure in the made-up virtual reality world. And I thought about this because this is kind of what you get with the angels in the middle part of Revelation 14. They're these reminders of what's really going on. They're acknowledging, yes, it seems like Rome is in charge. It seems like we're surrounded. It seems like if we say Jesus is resurrected, there's not a lot of evidence for that, but that's not true. The angels were giving them the actual reality. A first century Christian's eyes and ears told them that Caesar was God, that Rome was the center of the universe. But the angels that fly by have a different message for Christians. They say, you should fear God and not them. The second angel says, Babylon has fallen. And you look around and go, it doesn't seem like it. They say, no, 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 trust me. What's really going on? Babylon is through. Rome, Rome's days are numbered. And the third angel says, if you follow the beast, then you're going to suffer the punishment of the beast. It's a warning for those Maybe who are thinking about changing sides, getting the 666 tattoo on their forehead, giving up because they're weary and tired. The description that we hear about those who follow the beast and that the smoke of their torment rising before God's throne, that's pretty scary stuff. It's kind of, it gets pretty real. You may be wondering, well, Jacob, if the 144,000 number, if that's just symbolic and that's not something that's actually uh, literal, 
does that mean that the torment of those who are burned with sulfur and their, their smoke goes up before the Lord, is that symbolic as well? I don't know. I mean, that could be its own sermon series right there. But I wonder why we ask that question. My, my philosophy on that is let's not find out. Let's not roll that dice and play with that fire. I think the message that we need to hear is following the beast leads to death now and eternally. And following Christ leads to life both now and eternally. And if you were someone in the seven churches in the first century, hearing this message would have been extremely refreshing because they were not living in the Bible Belt. They were not even living in a country that had a history of being a Christian nation. They were in the belly of the beast, right in the heart of the Roman Empire. I want to show you another video. This is another uh, computer simulation video, and it's a, it's a recreation that somebody made of the city of Pergamum. We heard about this city when we studied. Uh, this is one of the cities where one of the seven churches was in Revelation. Based on the, uh, the archaeological excavations in the city of Pergamon, which is in modern-day Turkey, you would get something like this. Imagine being in the first century and walking through this kind of city. It was a testament to Roman architecture and ingenuity and wisdom. You would see the aqueducts bringing the water of life you needed to your city. The Roman amphitheater there would be showing performances of Rome's great battles and victories and those of the Greek gods that the Romans just sort of kind of commandeered and went along with. There would be a temple to Asclepios that you would visit if you were sick. You wouldn't be having prayer requests or going to see Kaiser. You would go and you would make a sacrifice. You would probably buy a little statue at the Asclepion. If you were having trouble conceiving a child, it was common to go and make a sacrifice or pray or even visit the temple prostitutes at the altar of Venus. There were statues and friezes and murals depicting the goddess Athena being the conqueror and the bringer of anything civil and moral. There were flags and inscriptions and painted columns that all pointed to the pantheon of Greco-Roman deities and that also said, you know what, every successful ruler, every Caesar, they're a god too, why not, throw them on the pile. The impressive temple of Zeus that we're at right now in our video, 40 yards by 40 yards, overlooked everything and said, this is the height of worship. You could not escape the story that Roman authorities, that Roman culture, that the Roman Empire was telling you in the first century. If you were a Christian, where was your story represented? Nowhere. If you were a Christian in the first century, your faith was not represented in any of the flags or the statues or the murals. There were no church buildings or cathedrals. There was no such thing in the first century as a decorative cross. There were no cities or hospitals that began with the word saint. Imagine how difficult it would be to stay faithful to Christ when everything around you screamed that Rome, the beast, was in charge. You had to be very vigilant. You had to be very consistent telling yourself and telling your family, this is not the only story. This is not what's real, like my virtual reality experience. This seems like it's happening. This seems like the story that the only story we have, but it's not. We believe that the cross is real. We believe that the empty tomb is real. We believe that the eternal promises of Yahweh are real. It would take vigilance. 
It took vigilance then. I think it takes vigilance now. We need to do the same thing. Remind ourselves of the story of Christ, the truth of the empty tomb, or else we just get swept along with whatever current the culture is leading us toward. I do this in a couple ways. I might have mentioned these before. Seem like a good time to share these. These are small ways, but it's something I feel it's important to do. I do this with my kids. If we're watching TV, we don't watch very much live TV, but if we're watching a, a sporting event or something, or even before YouTube videos, there's these, these ads that we have to watch. I'll be intentional about asking them. So a commercial comes on for a phone or a, a, a truck or a, a salty food or something like that, and I'll say, all right, girls, what is this commercial telling us we need in our lives? And they'll say, a new phone, a, a faster car. And I'll say the second question, do we actually need these things? And they'll go, oh, like, no, we already have a car. No, we, ha we have got like four iPads that we just need to charge. Like we, we don't need to, most of this stuff that they're trying to say, this is what will make you happy. This is what leads to the good life. I just like to point that out to them because otherwise they'll, They'll go along with it. And they'll say, like, yeah, we need this. We're not complete unless we have this. We're not complete unless we've achieved this or we have this status symbol. The other way that I do this with my girls is when we're watching, I guess we watch a lot of TV as a family. They're both TV examples. <laughs> if we're watching a show, even shows that are aimed at kids their age, like Eleanor's 8 and Molly's 11, and there's these, like, kids programs, animated shows, there are times when I will intentionally pause a show and say, okay, you know what that character just did and the way they talk to their parents? You know you don't talk to us like that, right? And they go, yeah, yeah, Dad, we know. Continue. We'll keep watching the show. I'll pause and be like, you know that that's not the only option, the thing that that person did. Like, that's, that's just one way that people think. That's just one thing that you can do. But there are, there are other ways, and we have values that we think are more in line with what Jesus wants. You know that, right? And they go, yeah, Dad, we know. We know. Pause. You see that kind of relationship? A lot of people think that that's great, but we don't think that that's a God-honoring kind of relationship. And we can talk more, more about that later. Okay, yeah, Dad, we hear you, we see, we get it. I am intentionally pausing the messages because, like I said, otherwise they will just get swept up in the current. I think that Christians need to consistently evaluate the stories and the values that the world is presenting to us and our kids. And when they don't align with the way of the Lord, and I'm not saying they always won't, but I'm saying when they don't, we need to pause. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. I almost stopped there, but this section I'm going to stretch out just a little bit farther because in case we're thinking like, all right, so in the first century, there were Christians who believed this, there was Roman deities, they believed this, and the, you know, the Roman shtick and the propaganda, and that was this. That's kind of like today, right? We, you could choose this and that's fine, or you could choose this and that's fine, or you can choose this and that's fine, and like, you know, don't yuck somebody else's yum. Like, if that's what they believe, let them believe that. As long as you believe something, it's okay. In case we're thinking that, I need to pause and say that's not the case. Because in the first century, if you were a Christian, you probably knew someone that Rome executed. You probably knew somebody who had died because of what they believed in Jesus. And you still had to live in that city. And you still had to pass by the amphitheater. And you still had friends who went to the Asclepion. And you still had a whole society of people saying, this is how the world works. And you're going, ah, this is the world that killed my friend. Peter was killed for his faith 
under the reign of the Emperor Nero. Andrew was crucified in southern Greece. James, the brother of Jesus, was thrown off of a building when he wouldn't uh, renounce his faith. Antipas, who is mentioned, somebody who lived in the city of Pergamum, was burned to death by the Roman authorities. And Luke, the gospel writer, was hanged from an olive tree. This was real. This was, the stakes were really high. And again, you may be tempted now to say, yeah, okay, I, I get it. I get it. This was, this was serious. But that's not how it is now. Like, we're, we're, we're not being threatened in the same way. This is not as high stakes of a game. I don't know if I would completely agree with that. I see today we live in a culture that drives our youth to take their own lives. We live in a culture that enslaves ourselves and those we love in patterns of addiction. We live in a culture that somehow simultaneously sedates us and exhausts us. doesn't seem like you should be able to do both. We're sedated or we're exhausted, but a lot of us are both. It's a culture that simultaneously provokes neighbor against neighbor and isolates neighbor from neighbor. It's a society that believes and cares less and less about the gospel, about the cross, about the empty tomb. It's either ignored or it's like, yeah, 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 you go over there. We're just all trying to get along here. And if our thought process is, that's kind of dramatic, Jacob. It's not all that bad. It's not all that dangerous. If that's where our thoughts are, then, then maybe the commercials we've been watching are doing their job. I am not against our culture. I love my neighbors. I love our world. I think the culture is important. But again, when the values and when the current is moving us in a way that says Jesus is optional, Jesus is yeah, one of many, Jesus is insignificant, then we're missing the story of our faith that we're hearing in Revelation and that a lot of Christians gave their lives to help establish. Whatever, whatever the circumstances, Christians must hold on to the story of God's love and redemption through Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said it like this, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. One more section in Revelation 14. This is the section where we get the phrase, the grapes of wrath, and it's a uh, section about a wine press, and it's often misunderstood. So let's, let's take a listen, see if we can understand it. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, take your sharp sickle. Gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press 
rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Okay. Another strange image. Description of a, of a drawing of an image that we weren't privileged to see and we just kind of have to try to make sense. We see that this is a harvest scene and a harvest is a good thing. If the harvest went well, if you have crops that need to be harvested, then everybody's in a good mood. They're baking pumpkin pies and they're high-fiving and they're, they're celebrating. This is going to be good. And in this scene, the grapes are harvested, they're gathered, they're put into the wine press. And you hear this, you kind of can't help but remember Jesus' words. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said this to his disciples. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his field. Yeah, Jesus is talking about the harvest of God's kingdom. He's talking about making disciples. And that's what John is talking about too, but we find out they're talking about it in two very different ways. Jesus talks about separating the wheat from the weeds, the harvest being the believers who have come to faith in God. John is actually describing their deaths. Wait, what? That doesn't sound right. Remember, it's a victory, but it's a lamb's victory. It's a victory in the tradition of the lamb who laid down his life. That's where we often get it wrong. We think, no, 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 no. This is about, this is about God's justice. This is about God stomping on the heads of our, our enemies and squishing them into a pulp. And that's how we're victorious. And we're celebrating in this harvest day. And we're singing glory, glory, hallelujah. But what John describes here is a martyr's death. What he's describing is a harvest of Peter's and James's and Luke's and Antipas's. He's talking about those who were killed for their faith. Do you remember what we heard earlier? Babylon the Great is condemned because she made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. And later on in Revelation, Rome is going to be described as a woman who is drunk on the blood of the martyrs. It's quite an image. And we're reminded here that a cosmic victory does not necessarily ensure an earthly victory. We believe that Christ wins in the end, and we know that the beast and the dragon have been cast down, but what we discover and what we can see is that they're not going down without a huge tantrum first. And our call as Christians today is to stand with that faithful multitude of witnesses, and we'll proclaim the good news every day with how we live and how we love. And that brings us back to how we pause, how we tell the story of Jesus because if we're not winsome, if we're not the light of Christ, if we're just shouting at people or shouting online or driving people away because we have the truth and they all need to come and listen, maybe we're not representing Christ well. We have to live that story as we tell that story. And we celebrate those who have been faithful all the way to their death. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God who keep his commands and remain faithful to Jesus. This is a, this is a weird message. I mean, I think the gospel in general is a weird message. We are saying we have victory because Christ died. Yes, we, it's because of the resurrection. But that doesn't make sense to people who don't have ears to hear the gospel who don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Victory in death 
was something that the Romans easily scoffed at. Jesus, the guy that we hung on a cross, we took care of that problem. You're still talking about him? Haven't you seen our statues? Haven't you seen our cathedrals? Haven't you heard our stories? This is the reality, Rome says. But the small yet faithful band of witnesses, and when we look into the heavenly scene, we see it's not so small after all. The great cloud of witnesses stands together. We sing a new song, and it's a strange song with weird lyrics, lyrics that won't make sense to some people. And that's how I want to end this morning. I want to invite you to stand with the faithful band of witnesses and to sing a song that is both new and whose lyrics don't make sense. I'll ask you to stand in a second, but let me describe this first. It's a song called The Lion and the Lamb. You remember back in earlier in Revelation, John hears a voice and someone says, look, it's the Lion of Judah. And he goes, oh good, because a lion is something we probably need right about now here in the first century Rome. But he turns and instead of seeing a lion, what does he see? A lamb who's got blood, his throat is slit, and he's, he's bloody, not with his enemy's blood, not because he squished it out in the wine press of God's wrath. No, because he gave his own life. Jesus is the lion of Judah, but he's also the lamb who was slain. He's both king of the jungle and also the humble sacrifice. And this song that we're going to sing together now says what Revelation 14 says. He is the lion and the lamb, and no one can stop him. Not Rome, not a beast, not the world that ignores him and rejects him. Jesus is the Savior, and he continues his saving action in our world. And that's the message that we hold on to. That's the message that we carry with us. That's what we gather here to celebrate each week. And so as witnesses of the resurrected Jesus, we declare this truth. We sing this victory song. I want you to stand with me now and prepare to sing it. You may not have heard it before, but I want to invite you to sing it as a celebration, as a victory song about Jesus and the goodness of his sacrifice. Because he loved us, he gave his life, he sacrificed us, and we can rejoice in the victory that we have in Jesus Christ, the lamb that was slain. Let's sing it together now. He's coming on the clouds, kings and kingdoms will bow. 